What if a conversation could change your life? What if a conversation could change your life? There's a story. There was a young entrepreneur in the 1980s. Uh, the story took place in 1983. It was between John Scully and a 20-something new tech startup by the name of Steve Jobs. And they were talking and walking, and Steve was trying to invite John to leave his company that he was currently the president of and join him at this fun new little startup called Apple. And uh, John, John Scully, uh, was the president of a company called Pepsi, which was a much bigger company than Apple at the time. Is anyone here familiar with the company Pepsi? Okay, good. That's good. Well, someone gave me a dirty look when I asked. Uh, how many of you are uh, How many of you are Coke drinkers, and how many of you are Pepsi drinkers? Do we have any? Okay, cool. Well, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, how many of you drink only kombucha? Okay, so all right, cool. Anyway, so there's he was the um, president of the Pepsi, and Steve's trying to recruit him, and they're walking and they're talking, and he's like doing his best effort. He's like, come on, just do it. And at the end, John says, you know, no. And why would he say yes? Pepsi is this huge company. He's got stock options. He's got the golden parachute. Everything is working for John. Why would he leave and take a risk and join this new startup company with this new technology? And Steve did something in that moment that uh, changed the course of John's life forever. He leaned in on him and he said, he said, John, do you want to sell sugar water for your, the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? And when he did this, something clicked with John. Something changed in John's heart. And two weeks later, he resigned from Pepsi, and he became the CEO of Apple for the next 10 years. And he went ahead, and he took that company from $500 million in revenue to $8 billion in revenue in a 10-year run. And... Um, it proved to be very, not only lucrative for John, but if you think about what Apple did in that stretch, they literally did change the way we do a lot of life. Like, John got to play in the big leagues, and, and he stopped selling sugar water. Now, conversations change lives. Think about your life. Maybe you had a conversation with somebody, and it changed your relationship with them, and you became... Lifetime friends. Maybe you had a conversation and it was the moment you knew that you fell in love. Maybe you had a conversation and it became the moment where you decided to have kids. Maybe you made or had a conversation and it changed the trajectory of your career or your business ventures. And maybe you experienced something completely new and exciting. And perhaps it wasn't as big and profitable as John Scully's move, but it was profitable to you nonetheless. Now, if you are as successful as John Scully and Steve Jobs, I'd love to meet you afterwards. There's a couple of questions I want to ask. So, uh, but like maybe there was a conversation that took place that helped you, that molded you, that changed the trajectory of your life. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Zacchaeus, and he had a conversation with Jesus. And this conversation changed his life. Zacchaeus wasn't expecting it. Zacchaeus didn't know it was coming. But after talking to Jesus, it changed the course of his life forever. Now, when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he is in Jericho. 
Does anyone ever heard the word Jericho before? You don't have to raise your hand. Thank you, Nicole. But you know what? You, there, there's a city called Jericho. Now, Jericho was a border town between two countries. And maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But if you're in a border country, that means that the government there can collect a lot of tariffs. They can collect a lot of taxes of incoming and outgoing business. And so because of that, Jericho was a very wealthy city. Okay, And because there, there was wealth there, that drew in different kinds of people and businesses. So there's lots of things that could be done in terms of taxes. And uh, Jesus, it says that Jesus enters Jericho, and he, uh, there's a man by the name of Zacodemus, and he is a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Okay, so, so we get this picture that there's this town here. It's very wealthy. It's a border town. They collect a lot of money. There's a lot of things. And Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, which means he had a staff that worked for him. He would tell people, go here and collect these taxes. Go there, collect those taxes. He would do it. He was in charge of people that... Um, we're collecting the taxes. And here's the deal with tax collectors at this time. They usually, they were known for, they had a reputation for collecting more money than they were supposed to. There's a word for this. It's called stealing. That's right. Cheating or stealing. And you could make a really good living being a tax collector, especially a chief tax collector, because you're at the top of that pyramid. You can make a really good living being a tax collector. Now, it was stealing, it was wrong, but you could be wealthy. <clears throat> so needless to say, the people of Jericho, the citizens of Jericho, the people flowing in and out of the city who were just passing through, they didn't think very highly of tax collectors. And consequently, they didn't think very highly of Zacchaeus. In fact, they were uh, not fans of him. They probably despised him. In fact, they probably thought he was evil. But before we throw Zacchaeus under the bus, we have to consider what it was like to be in Zacchaeus' shoes. Think about it. You're a Jewish man living under the oppression of Roman rule. You're already short. Text says he's short. It's not like he's like the star of the football team. Because, you know, first century football, that was a thing. It's not like he was like first picked. He's overlooked. He was probably from a struggling family. And along comes this opportunity to better his life. It can help him climb maybe out of the poverty he was experiencing. And he can grow his career. And the, <clears throat> the form that he can grow his uh, career in is a tax collector. He can start to climb out of the issues that he's in. What would you do if you were in that situation? I think sometimes we read these stories and we forget that these are real human beings with real issues and real questions and real problems. And the fact of the matter is, like, Zacchaeus wasn't different from from you and I. I mean, these were people that had ambitions and dreams. They also had struggles and fears. Uh, people who longed for a different kind of life, but they didn't know how to find it, or they weren't sure who to look to to find it. So can we really blame Zacchaeus for being a tax collector? I mean, we could, but let's be honest, any one of us might have made that decision to be one too. So, But that's where we pick up in the story. So what happens when Jesus comes to Jericho. The Luke, the historian, records the account. It says, A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, why did he want to see who Jesus was? Because he wanted to change his life. He wanted a different life. People that are content don't do that. 
Don't climb sycamore trees to check out what's going on if they're feeling good. He wanted a different life. But that's not enough evidence. I'll give you more evidence there. goes on. There's a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short and could not see over the, but he was short and couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Jesus does a couple of shocking things here. The first is, Jesus invites himself over to somebody's house. Now, I don't care who you are or what century you come from, Jesus doing this in this moment is shocking. It's shocking. People don't invite themselves over their houses, uh, other people's houses now, and they didn't do it back then. It was not a situation where you go, I'm coming to your house today. And also, there's something interesting here because Jesus, when he comes to the spot, he looks up into the sycamore tree. He sees Zach hanging out there, trying to get a glimpse, trying to get a view. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. Immediately, I'm going to come hang out at your house. Jesus knew Zacchaeus by name with having no knowledge or, uh, or relationship with him prior. This is something only a prophet could do. And Jesus does it with Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. He's, can you imagine what that feels like? You're just trying to get a glimpse of what's going on. You're looking, checking it out. And the main prophet of the entire world looks at you and calls you, calls you by name and welcomes you. He says, hey, let's go hang out. Let's go talk over a meal. But even more shocking than this, even more shocking than a prophet calling someone by name that he didn't previously know is the fact that any Jewish person who was serious about their faith would have nothing to do with a tax collector. They would never welcome a tax collector into their home. They would never eat with someone like this. It was unthinkable. And if you did it, all your friends would be mad at you. Talk about cancel culture. This is the original cancel culture. You did not do this. It was a purity test. And, and these tax collectors had failed the purity test. We don't associate with them. And no doubt. When Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I already know who you are. Come down from there. I'm going to your house. This must have blown the minds of the other Jericho residents. They must have stood up and go, what is going on? People don't do that. But Jesus did it. Jesus not only invited himself over, he not only called him by name, but he did something so against convention here. It shocked the entire town of Jericho. Now, we don't really know everything that happened when Jesus lands at the spot when they go to lunch at Zacchaeus' house, which was a great honor, by the way. Uh, the, the writer Luke doesn't detail what Jesus said to Zacchaeus in that moment. But we do know that Zacchaeus and Jesus had a conversation over lunch. And in that conversation, Zacchaeus senses that he's hearing from God. And look at how Zacchaeus responds after the conversation. 
But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. I'm not sure if he said it that way. Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. All right, what just happened? In short, a conversation changed Zacchaeus' life. How? Zacchaeus became a disciple of Jesus. It wasn't that Zacchaeus just began to believe in Jesus. This was a conversation that totally reoriented the life of Zacchaeus. Every single part of his life was touched by whatever happened in that conversation, including his finances. There's a New Testament scholar who is really fun. Uh, his name is Craig Keener. He says this, In ancient accounts of discipleship, a radical response with possessions was a certain sign of a newly acquired devotion to the teacher. This is just something you did when you changed your life. Your finances aligned with that life change, with that heart change. So Zacchaeus is now a disciple of Jesus. And so what I want to do right now is pause and give us some new language to understand what's happening in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus' life, prior to this moment, prior to this conversation, it was centered on him, his wants, his desires, his ability to uh, collect and gather uh, money and become wealthy, his power over other tax collectors. It was driven by what he thinks he wants. But what Zacchaeus discovers is that it's an empty life. He may have money, but it's an empty life. It's a disconnected life. But then Jesus comes along and has a conversation with him. And Jesus offers a different kind of life. He offers a different kind of hope. And this hope and this life is a compelling hope and a compelling life. It's a flourishing version of life. And Zacchaeus, when he looks at whatever Jesus is, he can't quite figure out totally what's going on there. When Zacchaeus looks at this, he knows. Like, you ever have that settled feeling that you know? Sometimes I like to uh, phrase it, you know when you're knower. Like, I, you know when you're knower. You know that you know that you know. No, he knows. There's almost probably a relief inside of him. He goes, this is what I've been looking for. That the flourishing life is actually within reach. He can finally become the person that he was meant to be. So how do we experience this life that Zacchaeus experienced? How do we do that? Well, the short answer is by becoming a disciple of Jesus. So it's critical then for us to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what we discover is that being a disciple of Jesus is, it requires more than just believing in Jesus, believing in him. After all, lots of people believe in a lot of things. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people turn to God when they buy a lottery ticket or other things. But Jesus said elsewhere to his disciples that really, in a way that really shines light on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, he says this, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. The key word here is obey. 
So let's get clear about this. A disciple is not someone who just believes in Jesus. A disciple is someone who obeys Jesus. And there's a difference there. And it's, a, it's actually a key difference. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did when he left the house. So let me offer you a simple definition for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who hears from God and does what he says. A disciple is someone who hears from God and then does what God says. That's the choice that Zacchaeus made. And that's the thing that actually changed Zacchaeus' life. He actually heard from God, but when he heard from God, he just didn't go, yeah, 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 and then just did whatever he wanted. Yeah, he actually changed his life. He gave up to half of his possessions, and he went back, and he, he made corrections. He made amends with the people that he had cheated, from whom he had stolen money. And here's the thing. Obedience is key if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. And this is where so many people, including myself, this is where we can miss it. Obedience is the key to the flourishing life. You see, uh, when the writers of the Bible talk about putting your faith in Jesus, maybe you've heard that phrase before, putting your faith in Jesus. They use a Greek word, and I'm going to share it with you right now. Pistis. Pistis. It's often translated as faith. But sometimes we think of faith as something we do with our minds. Many people think about it being a, a mental exercise or a mental ascent, uh, an intellectual acknowledgement that there is a God in the universe. He exists. I have put my faith in God, they might say. They say, I believe God exists, or I have faith that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's only part of what it means here. That's only part of what this pistis word means. It actually has a broader meaning. It also means things like confidence and fidelity and faithfulness and commitment and pledged loyalty. And by far, the clearest word that is used to describe pistis that captures the full meaning of faith in this word is the word allegiance. That faith re requires loyalty. It requires obedience. It requires an allegiance from us. And when you look at the characters that were in Jesus' life, Peter, James, John, Zacchaeus, Paul the Apostle, they all share something in common. They all had conversations with Jesus that changed their loyalty and allegiance to Jesus and his way of living. And they left their old way of living and pursued a new way of, of living and allegiance to Jesus. And today, you and I have the same opportunity. And I want to say that I'm speaking to two groups of people here today. There's some of you here today who are doing life on your own. And you've never come to the place in your life where you say, you know, I'm going to turn to Jesus. I believe that he has something for me. I'm going to give my life to Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And if that's you, I want to recommend that you do it. That there's something for you that Jesus offers that you cannot have on your own. And all you have to do is ask him. Because you don't have to earn his love or his trust. All you need to do is welcome him. And welcome him and bring and invite him into your life. The second group. <clears throat> there's a second group. Some of you have made the decision to follow Jesus already. 
You're trying your best to follow Jesus and to do what you can uh, with him. But there are parts of your life that are not aligned with the way of Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. You say, you know what, there's a part of me that is, if I'm honest, I'm not really digging what Jesus says there. You have allegiance in parts of your life, but not all of it. And for you, what I want to say is that God wants to do something in that exact part of your life. And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to become not uh, these two types of Christians. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an illustration. One example is a grapefruit Christian. Maybe, um, you ever see a grapefruit? Do you ever cut a grapefruit in half? What do you see when you cut a grapefruit in half? You see like little sections, right? There's little sections and they're all sectioned off. Am I lost? Are you guys, okay, can I get some sort of feedback from our predominantly upper middle class Santa Monica crowd? Okay, there we go. There it is. Okay, so when when you cut a grapefruit in half and you see those little, sometimes when we think about the Christian life, we say, oh, you know, this part of my life is for God. This part of my life is for myself. This part of my life is for God. This part of my life is for myself. And you section off parts of your life. I know that I've, do, I've done it. I do it in times. And it's a, that's one version of Christianity. Another version of Christianity, uh, I like to think of as the Salt Bay Christianity. Does anyone remember Salt Bay from a couple years ago? Does anyone remember Salt Bay from a couple years ago? Okay. So remember he would cut up the meat and he had the fun sunglasses and then he would sprinkle the salt. Remember? He would take the salt and he would, he would put it on top and you'd pay like $1,000 for the steak. Anyway, this is a very famous guy that would cut meat on the internet. And I fell into a deep algorithm hole while watching him cut steaks for hours at end. But Salt Bay would do this thing where he would, he would he'd be like a rock star and he would bring the steak to the table of a fancy steakhouse and he would cut up the steak in front of you and the last thing that you would do is he would take the salt and he would sprinkle it but he would let it sprinkle it and sprinkle it and fall down off the thing onto the steak and you'd be like wow that's amazing here take a thousand dollars for that steak so anyway he would do that sometimes we treat God like salt bay we the steak is our life we already know what we're going to do I'm going to date this kind of person. I'm going to have this kind of relationship with them. I'm going to pursue this kind of career. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to grow in this way. I'm going to keep these toxic people out of my life in 2020. You already know what you're going to do. And what you basically do, what people do in this salt bay version is they come to God and they say, God, can you just put a little spice on top? My life is already set. Now, can you just give me a little supernatural energy, a little flavor to make it better? I turn to you like someone would turn to a person doing a magic trick. Just give me a little extra. Just give me a little spice. Just put a little on top. And when we look at the heart of Jesus and what he does with Zacchaeus, and when we look at other scriptures, there is no room for grapefruit Christianity. There isn't even any room for salt bay Christianity. Jesus wants to get at the very core of our allegiances, and change us. And so what I like to offer, it's something I've heard from someone else, the most accurate picture of Christianity is chocolate milk Christianity. Maybe you've made chocolate milk. What's required? A glass, unless you're a psycho and make it in your hands, or you just dump it in your mouth like a... You need a glass, and you put in milk. Uh, And, you know, um, 
again, this is West LA, maybe you have oat milk or something. And after you put in the milk, you grab the Hershey's syrup, and you squirt it. Remember being a kid, never doing this? Am I the only one? You squirt all the, as much, and it's all sitting on the bottom right there. And then what do you do afterwards? You get a big spoon out, and you stir it up. You like stir it up as much as you can. And what happens to the Hershey's syrup? It touches every part of the milk. And that white milk goes to a rich, dark brown, and it becomes chocolate milk. It touches every part of the milk. When Jesus comes to us and has a conversation, the thing he's inviting you into isn't grapefruit, isn't salt bay, it's a chocolate milk Christianity. The what Jesus can and will do to lead you to the flourishing life must touch every part of your life. Jesus invites you to be a chocolate milk Christian. What I'd like to say is that um, today is your day for that. It's already 2024. You're here and you've probably made some goals up or something. I don't know. But I believe this is God speaking to you. It's certainly God speaking to me. And this is your opportunity to leave behind what's not working. The parts of your life that aren't working. And even the model of Christianity that might not be working for you. And to follow the way of Jesus. Remember, a disciple of Jesus just doesn't believe with their mind. A disciple of Jesus hears from God and does what he says. What I believe is that as you do this, this can actually change your life and my life. Let's say you're having a relationship conflict with somebody. The follower of Jesus pauses long enough to say, what is God saying to me about this relationship? Or if you're confronted with the world that's in need, someone who has needs, or you run into someone here at Pack City who has a particular need, you're asking, you're asking God, the, the follower of Jesus pauses and says, God, what are you asking me to do in this situation? And whatever he says, however you feel led, and however that's affirmed by the scriptures and other Christians, the affirmation of what we read in the scriptures, the disciples are constantly asking, what, God, what is my next step? And then they do it. They do it. The flourishing life. Here's what I believe. A conversation can change your life. A conversation can change your life. Jesus wants to have a conversation with you. It's 2024. It's a great time to do it. And I believe that he wants to talk to a whole bunch of us in the coming weeks. And some of us, he might be saying, do you really want to keep doing life the way you're doing it? Or do you want to come follow me and change the world? Do you really want to sell sugar water? Do you really want to pursue that dead-end relationship? Do you really want to chase after money, which you're not even that good at chasing? Do you really want to idolize this one thing? If it just had, it would make you happy. Or do you want to come with me and change the world? The same Jesus that talks to little Zach is the same Jesus that actually is in the room right now 
inviting us. And may, what if by hear, hearing from God, what if, it, what if it could change your relationships? What if it could change your finances? And when it changes relationships and finances and difficult situations and things, health concerns that we didn't expect, when that begins to happen, when God gets a hold of it and we give God room to do it and things begin to change, those are the kinds of things that change the world around us. Why? Because the people around us can start to see that, wow, you suddenly got better at life. And you weren't all that good before. Neither was I. But they can start to see there's something qualitatively different about your life. And the thing that's different about your life is that the power of God is doing something in your life. Something that wasn't there before. And because of that, you begin to influence the people around you. You begin to influence the world. And you might just change the world. And that's exactly what God wants to do in me and through me and in you and through you. My question to you is this. As you sit there, And as you are willing to search your heart and your feelings and your circumstances, let me ask you a personal question. What is the conversation God wants to have with you right now? What is it? What I think is that you should have it. Because it might just change the world. So let's have it. Let's have that conversation right now. Will you stand with me?